right, what's up, guys? Welcome back to the Jay Martin Show. I'm Jay Martin, and my guest today is Jim O'Shaughnessy, the founder and CEO of O'Shaughnessy Ventures, among many other things. Um, I'm excited to take this conversation in a few different directions. Uh, first, Jim, thanks so much for making the time and coming on the show today. Well, thanks for having me, Jay. I appreciate it. Well, I'm looking forward to this. Now, between uh, your various activities, allocating capital, uh, mentoring entrepreneurs, nurturing creators, you know, you've got a, quite, a, quite a web of activity. What are the most important, if you could name this, the most important macro themes that you're seeing develop right now that are driving your interest and your inspiration when it comes to allocating capital or picking entrepreneurs to mentor or looking at creators you think have promise? You know, what are those trends that are driving your inspiration right now? So uh, we're uh, doing a series over at Infinite Loops called The Great Reshuffle. And essentially, it's a look at where we see everything going, not just business, not just entrepreneurs, but sort of everything. And uh, we think that we have uh, reached an inflection point where many of the old models or playbooks of doing things a certain way are collapsing. And that the people who are tuned in to that are going to be presented over the next five to 10 years with asymmetric opportunities in a variety of, um, of industries. So, for example, in technology, in uh, creative endeavors like Substacks and podcasts, um, we, we're doing a micro budget uh, film company because one of the trends that we've seen out of Hollywood is they don't seem to be making movies that people want to watch anymore. Uh, they're certainly not making movies that like, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Rudy about the kid oh, yeah. who went to Notre Dame. Okay. So like we're, our first project is one on a, a, a guy who's like Rudy times four. His name is Dr. David Roney. And, uh, I had him on the podcast, and the first thing I said to him, because I knew O'Shaughnessy Ventures was coming, was, will you let me make a documentary about your life? Because the guy is such an inspirational and uh, what a great um, person to have for, for people who might have been in similar situations to see, wow, it doesn't have to go bad for me. Um, so we think that on the... Uh, investment side, we, we, all of our verticals are named uh, after our podcast with the infinite loops. So we have infinite movies, infinite uh, adventures, which is what VC used to be called. And I love the name. Uh, in, infinite uh, new media, uh, et cetera. We're also funding a fellowship where we will award 12 recipients uh, after their application is accepted. Uh, with a pretty straightforward uh, deal. Uh, we will provide them with $100,000 US paid monthly, no strings. Um, and, and those are done to enable people who uh, maybe are having a difficult time making a living mm -hmm. and that's stopping them from pursuing their dream life. Um, the amount of creativity and intelligence, Jay, that we are finding in the world is like nothing short of extraordinary. Uh, we were chatting before we started to record and, you know, 
one of our hypotheses is, well, talent and innovation is normally distributed around the globe. Opportunities are not. And with uh, what my friend Matt Clifford calls the greatest amplification uh, device, the internet, um, in the history of humanity, we've seen, uh, and this was sped up by the lockdown, but we've seen geography, time, and space collapse. Um, if you look just at our roster at uh, OSV, we have people in England, we have people in Singapore, we have people in India, we have people in California and Connecticut and New York, widely dispersed. Um, and so, um, you know, my friend David Senra had a, a great line and it was like, the internet is taking away all of your excuses for not trying. <laughs> and what we're looking for are people who are totally switched on. Many of them are young, not exclusively. I'm sure that there are some people uh, who are older who decided, you know what, I've got this last chance. I'm going to chuck my fitness landscape here and I'm going to go try something new. Um, but uh, the, the access to which we have uh, to these people, to being able to watch them and what they're doing online on places like Twitter and LinkedIn and all of the other social networks um, is basically giving us kind of a find and fund model. And um, so mm -hmm. I, I personally think that the, the, uh, the coming decade uh, is going to be like a, an explosion of uh, almost a Cambrian-like explosion of innovation, new tools, new methods. So that's where we're putting our focus. I Okay, I love that. There's lots to unpack there. And the reason it strikes me is because I feel like, you know, as most people do, we're experiencing a massive transformation right now. I believe the 2020s will continue to be how the 2020s have been, sort of continued, unprecedented uh, chaos and volatility. But on the other side of that, like I bet all day long on human ingenuity and progress. And I'm very curious to know where we land, right? Once this, this, uh, reshuffle or, you know, has occurred now, you know, hundred K paid monthly, no strings attached in order to create, because as you put it, talent is distributed evenly around the world, but opportunities are not. I am. So your initiative here, the goal is to unlock that talent and bring it to the world market, right? By by providing those, uh, you know, that essentially uh, allowance, right? You're giving, you're buying somebody time, right? The time to build and create and take part in the global economy. You're unlocking the talent, you're unlocking their productivity. You know, what happens, Jim, to like the, the competitive landscape of the globe when you suddenly you know, drop borders that have previously been restricting people's access to contributing uh, to global productivity and creating wealth and affluence. And you erase those now, right? Uh, how does that shift? Do you think that it shifts the power distribution throughout the world as well when you shift the productivity and talent distribution? I absolutely do. I think that um, what we're finding in our early days here are uh, the uh, the level of talent that we are finding uh, outside ex North America um, is staggering, mm. and uh, what what finally is happening, which I think is a fantastic thing, is that people 
who through no fault of their own weren't born in a country like the United States with the rule of law and venture capital and all those great things are now going to have access to all of that. Um, and the the talent that we are seeing, <laughs> it's in many regards just like breathtaking. So I, I think that you are going to see on the one side, the people who were or are in places uh, that, that were denied those opportunities mm. coming online and coming on really strong. Because the other thing that we're going to do is make them uh, part of our network. We are going to give them the resources, the uh, connections, et cetera, that they need to succeed. And, you know, uh, it's much easier to change your digital zip code than it is your actual one. And now, really for the first time, where you are does not matter. Um, we are completely agnostic as to whether you're a man or a woman, uh, whether you're uh, what religion you are, where you live. All of those things are meaningless to us. What we want to see is talent that we think is going to bring great innovation or great creativity mm -hmm. or a great new app into the world. So I think on the one hand, the recipients for the first time will feel like, oh my God, this is like, we've never seen this. On the other hand, I think a lot of people in North America are going to be challenged, quite frankly, by the raw horsepower that these mm -hmm. people are going to be bringing to the game. My personal philosophy is let's let's innovate, let's create, let's make the world a better place for everybody, right? So in fact, one of our litmus tests in our uh, venture division is uh, we want it to be an asymmetric opportunity, but we also want it to be win-win. The the era of uh, scarcity, the era of zero-sum games, I think is ending. Um, and I'm going to do what I can to help it end a little sooner. Mm. Um, and mm. and I think that the, um, just the, the, the amount of ideas that I see, Jay, on a daily basis astounds me and and like these are these are not like hey wouldn't it be cool if these are detailed plans for hey what about this particular distribution system for people who don't have it right now hey what about uh marrying ai as you know uh i'm an investor in and the executive chair of the board of stability ai a truly open ai company um where like yeah, I, I joke that that one day in stability time equals a month in regular time. Uh, uh, just all of the things that are happening um, and quickly. Um, so I'm I'm incredibly bullish on the long term prospects for um, being in this space and contributing to the space as well. Now, when you say you mentioned something, you said you think North Americans might be challenged by the raw horsepower emerging from uh, maybe emerging markets. I, you know, I I think you hit it, hit my curiosity right on the head there. 
when you say, you know, you're discovering outsized talent as you're scouring the globe in previously unexplored areas, that's got to be relative, right? So high horsepower, high competency relative to, I guess, what you've seen recently in North America. And I wonder, like, how much of that do you think is just driven by hunger versus um, driven by complacency, right? When you live in an affluent uh, country, like my life, for example, like I, I live in Canada, I'm in my late thirties, my life has been one prolonged bull market, Jim. It's just gotten better and better and better, greater access, uh, cheaper goods and services, just more ease of life, you know? And, uh, and I have to focus on that consciously to stay hungry. But, you know, when you talk about talent versus, well, you can speak about it, like, you know, outsized talent or is it outsized hunger? And if it is, you know, how do you, is there a complacency issue on the other side of that, that equation that we need to solve? Like, is that, how much of a contributing factor is that versus just the, we're discovering new and, and better talent or no, we're discovering hungrier individuals who just are going to outpace what we're currently used to here. Yeah, that's a, a great question. And let me hasten to add that we're, I'm sure that with our scholarship program, for example, where we're going to, uh, select 12 applicants. They're going to get 100000 for a year, paid monthly, no strengths. That's going to give them the opportunity to build, follow their passion, um, and not have to starve uh, or spend a lot of time uh, at, as a DoorDash driver, right? Mm. Um, so I'm certain that there will be recipients here in this country because like, we, we have enormous amounts of talent in the U.S., yeah. That that being said, I think your hunger question frames it better. Um the the relative ease that we in North America have enjoyed, the relative uh the the relative prosperity, um, you know, protection of the of the law, all of these things that you know, we wouldn't even have been talking about 10 years ago mm. are now relevant. But I think you're right in that in certain uh, groups, they get a bit complacent. I, me too, as you said about yourself. Um, and and so I think that the hunger aspect is important. Um, that's why we want to look. We are looking for distinctive people on the investment side, on the fellowship side, basically in every one of our verticals, ultimately we are betting on people. And um, the the quality of that person, the ideas of that person, the, um, and, you know, everything we think that they can bring to the table. Um, but I think it's also relatively natural uh, that quite wealthy societies become complacent. I mean, you go all the way back to Imperial Rome. And when when Rome got fat and happy is when things started to look really hard for them. Now, mercifully, um, most uh, people these days understand that, like the old style of I'm going to take your land or I'm, you know, Russia and Ukraine notwithstanding, um, is is certainly not going to be followed by countries like the United States or Canada or anyone in North America or in Europe, for that matter, would be my opinion. And rather, the ability to help those 
other countries, right, move up the chain of access to great technology, access to great new innovative firms that um, simply were absent. I mentioned that we are an LP in anchorless Bangladesh. And um, what I see there is quite stunning. Uh, used to be, if you were a young, hungry entrepreneur in Bangladesh, your capital pool was pretty much limited to a very, very small group of local uh, money. Um, the terms were not offered anything like we offer them here in North America. Um, they were, you know, pretty <laughs> not conducive to building out over a 12 to 18 month period, a, a real project that can have legs. Um, so now that we're there offering more North American style terms to these people, um, like they're, they're exuberant. It's like, are you kidding me? I actually get to build what I want to build and, and you're going to help me and you're not yeah. going to ask me for a dividend or anything like that. So we've, we've had a rapid education about, you know, how things got funded in other parts of the world. And we see a blue sky there. Uh, there is now that we have the ability to have eyes on these creators and these innovators, um, capital will follow. And, you know, it's the theory of markets, right? Um, they, they can be relentless, but eventually they come and they make things better for the most part, not always, mm -hmm. but for the, for the most part, um, the creative destruction essentially creates things that are better, that are more useful and, you know, not necessarily, uh, thought of universally by everyone. My friend, Rory, uh, Sutherland, who, uh, is the vice chair of Ogilvy in the UK, says the, the beauty of free markets is that they can invent things that are enormously popular where there doesn't seem to be any practical use at all for what they invented. Um, and, you know, people trying to run a command and control structure simply can't compete in that kind of environment, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I love that. And, you know, it <clears throat> the hunger narrative strikes me only because um, I don't know if there's anything more motivating than a deadline, you know, and that's just to say um, that we fight hardest when our back is against the wall, when we feel like our options are light, you know, that's when we come in guns blazing and create something amazing. And, you know, you know, we, we've all been in that situation, right? And <clears throat> for example, on a micro scale, I write a newsletter, I publish every Sunday, you know, I'm writing that thing Saturday night. Like it just, you know, but that's when it comes out, you know, and it works. Saturday. I, <laughs> if I, I, I write my stuff Sunday when it's due. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> but it's true. Cause it, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful motivator. And similarly, you know, I've identified this in myself when business is going really well and, and cash flow strong and I'm feeling secure, I'll go ahead and blow something up, you know, like subconsciously I'll go ahead and self-sabotage to a degree because I just know you know, I, I perform better through trial by fire and I'm trying to learn how to perform better from the abundance mindset. Cause I'm great from the scarcity mindset. That's very motivating and driving, but I'm trying to figure out right now how to perform better from a, from the abundance mindset, right? Like anyways, I'm working on that. So I want to, I want to pivot to, uh, maybe, you know, some cultural things in North America that I'm looking at. We talked about the complacency 
and you know how much certainty in a, in a just system we have. It's a very predictable life that we live, uh, very low volatility relative to the rest of the world. And maybe this decreases our hunger relative to these emerging markets that you're looking at. One thing that I'm curious about is as life becomes predictable and relatively safe, our personal accountability can drop a little bit. And when that occurs, uh, we can make poor decisions that we don't think through very thoughtfully. And when they backfire on us, instead of taking ownership over those, we point the finger. And I'm referring to, uh, let's talk about FTX and use that as an example right now. Um, you know, you could say that a lot of investors were um, screwed over, right? And defrauded. Um, you could also make the argument that they didn't do very effective diligence. They looked at a company that did not have an existing board that for some reason decided not to domicile within the country, went to the Bahamas. There's usually motivating factors behind that, had a very sketchy audit process and all of this. So when you look at uh, uh, a situation like that, right? FTX, Sam Bankman, Freed, where do you put ownership? Because I hear people pointing the finger at the media and saying they should have done more investigative journalism and pointed this out sooner. I hear people pointing the finger at regulators saying investors should be protected from scenarios like this. And then I hear people saying, look, it's the investor's fault. They walked into this blind. I mean, some of the biggest funds in the world, like Sequoia, didn't do diligence. They deserve to get burned. Uh, do any of those three buckets strike you as like where accountability lies in the scenario? So I like Harry Truman's uh, line, which is the buck stops here. Um, if uh, OSV uh, makes a mistake, it's my fault. Mm. It's not the people that I'm working with. It's not my colleagues. It's my fault. Um, I'm a huge believer in retaining all of your agency. And people who have high agency tend to be the people who end up winning more and more in life. Um, the finger pointing is a dead giveaway that that person, uh, in my opinion at least, um, prefers to uh, try to remove the blame from themselves um, and, and put it on others. I think that's a massive cop-out. Um, so like you can quote me if, if and when, it's not just if, it's when, uh, OSV makes an original mistake uh, because we're going to make a lot of them. Uh, we're going to own it. I'm going to own it. It's going to be up. It was my fault. And so you won't hear me blaming the media. You won't hear me blaming fellow investors. It's me. And those are the kind of people that we're looking for. We're looking for people who understand that at the end of the day, if it goes right, wrong, or sideways, you've got to retain your agency as the responsible founder, uh, uh, a large shareholder, presumably. Um, and if you don't do that, um, or you have a history of not doing that, I'm not interested in you, um, no matter how great your particular idea happens to be. Listen, ideas are, are free and cheap for the most part. Execution, boy, <laughs> I mean, the difference between, an, listen, an idea without action is a daydream. And lots of people can have daydreams. I have daydreams. I'm sure you do too. But unless you put action behind your ideas in a ethical, high agency way, um, it doesn't matter, right? Like 
I've met some of the most brilliant people in the world in my old life as just public equity asset manager. And you could just see the great ideas, but like nothing's ever going to come of it. And because, you know, there's a lot of, well, you know, when they start dissembling, you know, about, oh, that was his fault. We fired that guy. Like, these are all tells when when you watch. It's it's like I have a rule in life. Right. And that is if I'm really um, interested in in partnering with somebody or uh, investing in them, if I have the opportunity to bring them to lunch or dinner, uh, I pay very close attention to how they treat the wait staff. People who treat wait staff poorly are people who punch down and kiss up. Mm. And I'm not interested in that kind of person. I'm interested in people who treat everyone with respect. Um, as my mom used to say, treat everyone with respect until they've proven otherwise. Um, and, and so high agency, uh, ethical, uh, presentation of, uh, the opportunities, all of those things distinguish the people in our opinion, uh, that are going to be a higher probability bet, uh, for OSV O'Shaughnessy Ventures to make. Um, now, are we going to win all those? Of course not. I mean, there's all these things you see about luck. Right. So how much is luck responsible for what is happening? Luck is always going to be a little bit responsible. I mean, unless you're in one of the things that are like in games, right? You know, poker, lots of luck, chess, much less so. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 so but it's everywhere on the continuum. You you mentioned that, you know, we were lucky. I was like when people say to me. Well, you know, you can only do that because you were born in the United States and, you know, you, had, you came from a well-known family and everything. My response is, that's true. I was born on third base, man. And, and I, like, I won the cosmic lottery. I'm a super lucky person. But there's thousands of others mm. who were born at exactly the same time and exactly the same circumstances as mm. me who haven't done anything. So... One of the things that I try to do is just keep my mind open to, you know, kind of look for a pattern recognition of lucky circumstances, right? And then it, it's like, if you don't like the woo-woo, because that can sound a little woo-woo, you can say, well, scientifically, this is called you're activating your reticular activating system. And that makes your brain more aware of these things that you want it to be aware of. So I, I definitely think that on the FTX thing, uh, you know, that that was his fault. I mean, let's be honest here. This was a fraud and he was using investors' money for his own purposes. I come from the highly regulated world of asset management, public equities, and have been a fiduciary 35 years. So it's baked into my DNA. Like I couldn't even conceive of mm. doing anything like that. I couldn't conceive of not having audited financials. I couldn't conceive of any, uh, because like the due diligence we underwent at the company I sold, O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, and am retiring uh, as chairman from at the end of this month, like 
the stacks of of documents for due diligence were this high. Yeah. So, so yes, you know, should investors have done better due diligence? Yeah, they should have. Um, you know, should the media have held him to a tougher standard? Uh, like, look at what they did to Madoff, and and you know, he's still giving interviews. So, uh, yeah. I I think that um, I think that. That's an obvious, and I, I hate to, I hate to just try to argue and then expand from that specific example, sure. because um, you know, at least in my mind, this is clearly a fraud. Um, it uh, it uh, affected a lot of investors, many of whom, like it was a terrible blow to their financial uh, uh, well being. Um, but yeah, high agency. Uh, part and parcel of the type of people we are looking for. Yeah. And I, I like that answer. And I, I don't mean to say that these investors didn't do diligence and therefore deserve to get burned. I guess what I would say is I, I think there's a really valuable lesson here that nobody has your back, especially if you're allocating capital, it is all on you. And every time you send a dollar out, like that's your risk. You have to own that, you know? And, uh, and I, I think, that uh, there's so much, um, you know, almost pop culture infused with investing today that people can become blind to the risks of capital allocation, that these are very, very real and you can't lose everything, right? And there's no forgive, there's no, uh, yeah, no one's going to come to the rescue anyway. So, okay. So I want to, um, I want to pivot from here into something a little bit different. Now you talked about a lot of the creators that you're nurturing and, you know, you're looking at, uh, uh, a lot of uh, creators that may launch sub stacks within your enterprise. You know, I've been hearing a lot of commentary over the last couple of years forecasting that we're maybe hitting, you know, peak newsletter in the industry. And maybe we're hitting peak podcast in the industry. Like this can only grow so much. The world is already an elephant graveyard of three episode podcasts. Like how much more can this grow? You know, and so what do you have to say to that when someone says, look, it's too saturated newsletters, podcasts, it's too saturated. You know, don't go there right now. What do you think? Well, I, I think that that's foolish. Um, like it all depends on what are you going to start a podcast about? Right. Um, you know, I, I'll use again, David Senra as my example, founders podcast. Um, you know, had he heard. Uh, when he founded that podcast that, uh, oh, no, nobody's going to listen to you just talking about a founder because you're a maniac and read every book on that person and have, you know, 25 hours worth of notes before you even begin to tell the story of that founder. Wow. I mean, what an awesome podcast. And mm -hmm. if you want to learn about being a founder, what they were like, what kind of qualities they had as people i can't more highly recommend that podcast than anyone else in a similar fashion with substacks what are you going to write about right so this idea that to look at it as just an aggregate as a category i think is is uh misleading um you mentioned a lot of the podcasts you know are in the three uh episode graveyard well i mean that's part of markets right? 
a lot of people think, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll just start a podcast and then the money will roll in. Wrong answer, man. This, this stuff is, you have to be persistent. You have to allow for time to determine whether people are going to be interested in you or not. And, you know, if, if you're like, you, you, you release your first podcast and, and then you're watching, how many listeners yeah. am I getting? That, that, that is a way to sabotage yourself because mm. you, just you just launched it. I mean, like people, one of the reasons propaganda works, this is a glitch in our human OS and it's well-documented in scientific studies. Propaganda works because it's repetition, repetition, repetition. Essentially, people tend to believe what they've seen a number of times is true, right? That's why propaganda works. That's why advertising works. That's why you right. see Coke's logo everywhere in the world. Mm. And so one of the things that that doesn't take into account is that's how we learn a lot of things, right? It takes time for anything to get to a state where you're going to be able to make uh, a, a determination. Okay, um, I've been, I've got 30 episodes in uh, in circulation. Um, I haven't gained a single new listener. Okay, so maybe that information is giving you, good for you, you tried with 30. Let's, let's take that same determination and find a subject you're even more passionate about, right? And the same with the Substack. I mean, my God, the amount of, just the fact that, for example, Matt Tibby, uh, who used to be the lead writer for the Rolling Stone, mm -hmm. uh, huge platform. He had a huge, he had a great spot. And then, you know, he got spiked. His stories got spiked one too many times. And so he, he was like, you know, fuck it. I'm going to go start a Substack. Mm -hmm. And now he, he's doing infinitely better. He has more readers. Yeah. Um, and, and so you see this, um, this dislocation where, like the best reporters are now seeing, hmm, I might be able to do much better doing it this way. Mm. Um, the best, the best podcasters, same type of scenario. So I, I don't think um, the argument that there's too many or the thing is saturated. Um, I, I'll give you a, an example, and then we can move on. Uh, do you know that in 1900 in America there was more than 200 companies making cars, automobiles, mm. right? And that, you know, that's before Henry Ford stepped into the game. And, and so can you imagine, Henry, are you nuts, man? There's already 200 of the, on top of which no one's given up horses. I mean, you're deluded here. Yeah. Why would you do that? There's already 200 people beat you to the, uh, the uh, punch here. Yeah. So, so I, I uh, passionately recommend, if you've got a great idea, uh, be it for a podcast, be it for a Substack, try it, pursue it, but allow the time it takes for people to even notice that you're there. Um, and, and if you do that and give it a real good shot and give it time, that works. The last thing I'll say is if you look at like a graph of like 
what became a super successful podcast. Oftentimes the graph looks like this. So you, day one, right? You don't have anybody. And then it kind of bumps along and you know you start to do well, but then at some period, it kind of goes vertical. And why does that happen? Because your listeners have been telling their friends, you got to listen to Jay Martin's podcast, man. He's great. And, and so again, we are moving into an era of authenticity and where getting a referral from a friend that you trust is going to be worth 10 million in ad buys because people are becoming ad blind. Uh, I know I am. Uh, so that's what I, that's what I think about that. If you've got a great idea, pursue it. I love that. And it's, you know, comes back to just betting on yourself. Uh, one thing that, you know, I didn't anticipate when I launched a podcast and a newsletter was how much it would clarify my thinking about ideas. You know, when you're forced to like, I can feel like I have high conviction in a thesis and I understand a subject, but when I then have to verbally communicate and articulate that to somebody else, I'm exposed to all the cloudiness in my thought process. And it's like, oh man, this isn't sculpted at all. It's like, it's still a loose piece of Play-Doh. Like I need to do some work on this, you know? And, uh, and writing has made me a far better investor because for the same reason, it's like, okay, I got to think through my thought process, put it on paper in a logical way. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, you're covered in blind spots, right? Like this is, no one's going to read this and find it believable. So, you know, it struck me a, a, a quote that you tweeted a couple of days ago was Carl Jung, the privilege of a lifetime is to become who you truly are. And it's such a beautiful quote. And, and that's reason enough to start a podcast. I mean, for anybody who's listening and, and wondering, should I do this? You know, one of my greatest takeaways from a podcast and a newsletter is learning more about how I think about the world and understanding my own thought process and my own core beliefs and biases and heuristics and all this stuff. Yeah, uh, I mean, not now that's you're you're hitting me at my sweet spot. Um, I I was very lucky uh, to start keeping journals back when I was 18. So I'm 62 now. I have like more than 40 years of journals, and and I learned very early on that what you just said is so true. If you think that you kind of know what you think about something, and then you go and try and write it out you're going to find out really fast that you don't know shit about that thing you thought you had completely, <laughs> yeah. you know, complete knowledge of. Mm. So as a practice, it also teaches you humility. It teaches you that, you know, we're all confabulating our own narratives and stories, and we're always the hero, usually, of that story. And like, I've made a deep, deep study of human nature, human operating system. And like, we all do it. I do not exempt myself from this. And it's really helpful when both you have in your own handwriting <laughs> calling you a liar. Oh, I guess I didn't believe that back when I thought I did. Um, that's incredibly helpful and humbling. And, and it keeps you much more open-minded to the idea that you could be wrong. I, I say I don't know all the time because I don't know. And rather than assert my opinion, which is probably horribly formed, right, about something, unless I've really, really done a deep dive on it, um, I'm, just as, I'm just as probably wrong as everybody else. 
And and the other thing that I, I that really resonates with me from what you've said is hosting a podcast as I do with Infinite Loops as you do here. You you have to hear from people that you might have originally really disagreed with, mm. and I think that that's the the echo chamber that that is being set up. I think is going the wrong way. I think that what you want to do is expose yourself to as many points of view as possible because it's nuanced and you might find that they bring up something you never ever thought about right and that changes your opinion i change my opinion all the time mm -hmm. when i find better evidence evidence that i hadn't thought about right and and people get afraid to do that because what they do often is they take their beliefs and they associate themselves, their personality with those yeah. beliefs. And then you get all these people on social media saying, I'll die on that hill. Yeah. Well, I prefer the George Patton uh, maxim of no, I prefer the other poor dumb bastards to die on their hill. I, mm -hmm. I'm not dying on this one. So, mm -hmm. so remaining open-minded, exposing yourself to ideas that you think at least intuitively that you don't agree with can really open your eyes to the idea that you're wrong. And I, again, wrong. When people hear that word, like a lot of people have a really bad reaction to wrong. They don't want to be wrong, right? Everybody wants to be right. And I'm very happy being wrong because it, it provides me a huge opportunity to learn. Okay. I was wrong. Why was I wrong? oh, what can I incorporate from what I learned about that into my toolkit for next time I'm making a choice? Yeah. So I, I, yeah. I, definitely, I definitely think that um, that, is a, that is a gift that you can give yourself. If, if you can start journaling, uh, just try it for 30 days. That's another little secret. If you can do something for 30 days, the habit can form and you won't even notice that you're filling in your journal every day. To totally. I love that. I started journaling about seven, six years ago. One of the ancillary benefits is that I can go back and read my, um, <clears throat> read my, um, <clears throat> my entries from, you know, two years ago or even a year ago, you know, and then I can see, oh, like I was struggling with this core issue. Like I'm still struggling with that. Like time to do something about this, you know, and you get to reflect back on like maybe what I was really excited about goals that I was supercharged to attack and then accomplish, but then kind of forgot like, oh yeah, I did that thing, right? Like let's celebrate a little bit here. Um, yeah, great perspective because it's like a time machine. Um, now your comment about how you love being wrong. I love that because, you know, for example, if you and I are, are, are in a debate and I feel very strongly about a certain thing and you feel the opposite way and we start arguing about this and you destroy me, right? You corner my arguments, uh, dismantle my thesis, my belief system. I can feel like a loser in that scenario, but it's important to remember that I'm the winner, right? Because I'm the one who leaves with a net increase in perspective, right? I've had information added to my perspective. I've left with a change of opinion, maybe uh, had holes blown in my conviction. That's a net positive to me. So one thing you said a few minutes ago was, you know, we're moving the wrong way uh, within the echo chamber. And if I understand that correctly, it's like we're seeing increased divisions, maybe a an increase in us versus them narratives, which, you know, you know, you sort of jump into your silo of like thinkers, which just kind of reinforces your conviction because of that echo chamber. 
you know, <clears throat> is this, I see that as a trajectory that kind of concerns me, right? Because we tend to sort of tribe up together and, and surround ourselves with people who think the same way that we think about certain core issues. And the further we get from opposing voices, the more foreign and dangerous they seem. And, and that's a trajectory that's going a certain way. And I wonder like, what does that become? And does it eventually, how do we eventually dismantle? Does that self-destruct like, you know, does that trend concern you? And, and if so, or if not, like, how do you, how do you forecast that? Jim? Yeah. Yeah. The, the trend concerns me deeply. I'm reading a book called Co collective illusions about how those things happen. And um, during if you if you study history, you'll see that during uh, particularly volatile or chaotic times, when a lot of new stuff is coming uh, online, and we're in one of those right now, uh, people tend to you know there's the old quip: everybody wants improvement, but nobody likes change, right? And and so when things get overwhelming for people, they tend to. Uh, shrink back into their comfort zone. And that includes the in-group where everyone is saying the same thing that they're saying. It makes them feel part of a group. It makes them feel uh, secure. Um, by the way, all of these are predicated on our biology. So it's not like that single guy over, or woman over there is doing this and boy, they should learn. We all do it. And we do it because of our evolution, right? Back in hunter-gatherer times, the most important thing for a human to do was fit in. You wanted to be accepted by the group because if you weren't, you were exiled and that meant death. Mm -hmm. People who think that the world was a glorious and wonderful place before all of this modern technology would be very, very surprised to learn that the early environment for humans was horrible. I mean, and, and I'm not talking about hunter-gatherers here, right? Uh, I'm talking about like uh, President Coolrich's son was playing lawn tennis at the White House and got a sliver and died because there were no antibiotics. And, and so, um, but it's in our nature to want to fit in and then stand out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what, what, what happens is the other thing that we need to confront is we are primarily emotionally driven characters. We are a, primarily an emotionally driven species and the controlling emotion there is usually fear. And it's fear of the unknown is the real one, right? Like all you have to do is go back to 2020 and look at some of the reactions to the novel threat presented by COVID. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, seeking the shelter of groups that uh, you know have your back, so to speak, um, is, is a pretty natural thing to do. But I would urge you to understand that, you know, you can overcome that part of, of your biological programming. Again, the book that I'm reading, Collective Illusions, at, one of the points that he makes is really interesting. And that is there are often, and this is pre-social media too, by the way. He starts out with a town um, in, I think upstate New York, turn of the century, where a particular woman, it was a very religious town. And there was a woman who 
had very, very uh, almost um, incredibly restrictive uh, puritanical notions about what was right and what was wrong, right? And a young psychologist went up there and actually moved there. And he started knowing the people, interviewing them. And like one of the weird things that I'd never heard of was like there was a taboo against playing cards with face cards, which came from the old Puritans who hated the royalty. And so they decreed that no one should play with face cards. And so that view he found prevalent in this town. And then he witnessed everyone who said that to him playing cards with face cards. <laughs> and, and so it's kind of the public knowledge versus private behavior. And another thing that we do is we think that we can read the minds of even our, uh, you know, just our neighbor. We can't. We can't even read the minds of our spouse for the most part. It's very, very difficult. And so what we do is we simply assume that they believe that too. Rather than saying, hey, do you think it's crazy that you know, we're not playing with face cards here? They, they don't want to stand out. They don't want to put themselves at risk for the group saying, you're wrong, you're a heretic, right? And so they shut up. And so preference falsification, especially in the area of, uh, or era of social media, has been increasing and increasingly among young people. And that's a bad thing, I think. I think that you should have the ability to respectfully um, uh, say, hey, but what about, and hey, where did this tradition of not playing with face cards come from? Is that still relevant today? And, and so uh, the entire book, Collective Illusions, is, is I'm now getting to the part with his suggested um, cures for this, if you will. Okay. Um, and, and, and they are, you know, you, you can put it out there that, yeah, you know, I don't know how I think about that quite yet. You know, uh, I want to learn more about that. If you just do that, it almost acts like a um, cognitive interrupt. Because your brain is going to run these things due to its programming, right? And so it will take its cue from you. We're back to agency, right? And and congruence in your points of view is very important to most humans. But by the same token, you don't want to like slip into brain dead ideological fervor, right? If 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 I could ask you about one of your social or political positions, right? And you gave it to me. If I could infer all of your other positions from that one answer you gave me, that's a problem mm. because you, you've essentially, uh, and I'm gonna remove it from you, <laughs> uh, but that person is going, has really sunk into a cult of belief and you see yeah. it all the time. And then, generally speaking, if so, you you led into this with saying, if you demolish my argument, then I walk away with better. Well, you're enlightened. That's great. Most people don't walk away like that. Mm. Most people walk away doubly convinced of that they were right. And what else do they do? What else do they do? What we talked about earlier. It was that guy. Mm. That guy is wrong. And I'm going to show him.
right? So that that is generated by what you're perceiving or the person is perceiving as an attack on their person, right? Yeah. And if you look at, at fMRIs of the brain, when they're experimenting with all these things, it lights up. The same region of the brain lights up in fight or flee. And yeah. so your body is getting a very different message. And so my way of looking at it is I try to be as kind as I can to people who I think might be wrong. I try to find reasons why I might be wrong about, about what their particular belief is. Um, but the one thing you don't want to do is just like make it immediately an ad hominem attack against them, which you see so much of. I mean, it's it's cheap and it, it just shows that the person um, administering that ad hominem Mm, their 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 own ideas are probably not that great, right? Right. Yeah, and that is a problem, right? We tend to um, assume that we are our ideas, and so if you are challenging or criticizing my ideas, you are challenging or criticizing me personally, and that's exactly different. those are different things, right? It's very important to very very different yeah. things. Now I'm aware I've um, probably, I'm probably bumping up against the hour. So if you got to go, just flag me. I want to get into one more last topic, just because I got to ask you about stability AI. I want, I want to, sure. I want to talk about that for a minute. You got to jump, just flag me and we'll, we'll shut it down. No sweat. But I, I would love to hear specifically when you're like, uh, what did you say? A day in stability AI time is a month in real time. That's how fast things are moving and how much is going on. So first of all, open it up. What is Stability AI and what are you guys building? Uh, Stability AI is a truly open AI company, meaning that uh, when we have, we just shipped a new version of Stable Diffusion, which is the uh, model that we use um, today, 2.1. Um, and uh, developers, uh, others who uh, want to make use of that for their good ideas can, because uh, previous to our releasing the entire model with weights in August of 2022, you couldn't do that. The, the innovators, uh, entrepreneurs couldn't use the, the AI to hook it into what they're working on. The reason I um, uh, immediately jumped at the chance to invest in stability AI is, uh, you know, I, t I tend to take a stoic view about things that I can't have any effect on, right? Like, I don't get worked up about, you know, who gets elected or, you know, what company is doing great or whatever, if I don't own it or I don't have any effect on that. But this was an area where I have, I feel very passionately that, the future needs to belong to open systems as opposed to closed systems. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want a panopticon, which is controlled by a few, making decisions for you, Jay, about what you can and cannot experiment with using these incredibly powerful new tools that are being made available through AI. Mm -hmm. So uh, Stability um, is a truly open AI company. Now, that doesn't mean we won't build models, uh, you know, at the enterprise level for big companies. That that will be their version of it. But we will always have the most recent version 
of our models in the public domain that allows people, developers, other AI people uh, to, to use that as um, a jumping off point um, for their own work. Um, I, I, I think stable uh, diffusion is a really interesting foundational model. It's what the AI people call a primitive in that it can be put to a ton uh, of uses. The, the other thing that we're seeing and gearing up for is the uh, emergence of multi-model uh, AI uh, systems, where you, where you do a large language model with a more visual, stable diffusion model. Some of the things that are coming out with that are like truly breathtaking. And, and so I think that back to the wow, this is something where my actions can actually maybe have a tiny little effect on pushing uh, where we're going in, in, in a different direction. Um, so, uh, it, by the way, it's not just stable AI that where one day equals one month. It's anyone working in AI, given the, the tsunami of new innovations. And, and I will say, many of which come because we opened up that model. Uh, to people. I really believe that open will always be closed. Why? Because we are humans are complex adaptive systems. The societies and economies that we build are super complex adaptive systems. And if you spend some time studying uh, complex adaptive systems, you know that all emergence, i.e. all the cool new stuff, comes from the bottom, not the top. And we, we have this idea that we, you know, we already know everything that's gonna be used, good and bad for this particular tool. We have no idea. You know, when man invented fire, hey, awesome. It created our prefrontal cortex, but we also figured out you could use it to uh, create a flamethrower. And that's not a good use of that particular technology, if you will. But after inventing fire, we also invented fire departments, fire warnings, fire escapes, all of those types of things. So I think that uh, I certainly lack the arrogance to believe that Jim O'Shaughnessy is going to know every use case which might uh, come out of uh, the stable diffusion model. Um, and it shows, right? It's, it's what we saw after we released Stable Diffusion in August was a, again, a tsunami of innovation. All many, many more use cases and examples than even we were anticipating. And that's because cognitive diversity is another reason open models win. Yeah. People think, people think differently. And certain people have like, they're incredibly brilliant at one thing and maybe they don't know much about this other thing. Giving those people access, allowing them to work together is going to get you to an innovation that is an excellent innovation, a lot faster than people thinking, uh, yeah, no, that's not gonna work. We're not gonna even try that, mm. right? It's like the old one, you know, uh, if, if you think you know everything, you know, go see a psychiatrist, man, because you're probably yeah. quite yeah. a bit of a lunatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. And, you know, you hit on um, some of the fear around AI that 
it's emerging. There's definitely a ton of excitement and a ton of fear. Uh, both motions probably are grounded in a lot of validity. But as you said, you can weaponize any technology, including fire, right? That's been weaponized. We then put safety precautions in place, right? And 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 one thing I would add there is we are fully aware of the of the um, downsides and potential misuses of AI, and we are working very hard to both put together groups um, and that uh, we'll be able to. My idea is that we actually create a wiki where that's moderated, but where people who think differently than we do can can go to the wiki and say, have you ever thought about this potential danger? Um, so to surface it so that people can discuss it and try to find an ameliorating um, uh, tactic to it. Deep fakes. We're going to be launching a deep fake co uh, competition. Um, I feel so passionately about this that OSV is actually going to add 100,000 to the prize. Stability has 100,000. So it's going to be a $200,000 prize for um, any clever uh, developer who can come up with a deep fake detection system. If it meets our hurdles, that person will obviously win the prize. But the thing that we will do is we will give it away for free because we want people to not fall for deep fakes. And so we are actively pursuing um, solutions to some of our known problems, but we're also keeping our mind open about problems we don't know about yet, right? And they certainly will emerge. And if we if we can't error correct, we've got a problem. And yeah. so we are, I'm massively bullish on what AI kind of in everything is going to be able to enable the normal person to do but very cognizant of the downsides. We're trying to address those downsides. And then the final thing that I would say is another reason people are afraid is because they, you know, AI is going to take my job. Now, in certain very limited circumstances, that is that will be true. However, the way we see it developing, and we're seeing this in real time, is this whole idea of senator models. That's half human, half, half AI. Um, uh, Kasparov, I think, uh, initiated it in chess, and they found that the Senator model beat the AI. And so I, I, I want people to think of AI and working with AI is much more of a collaboration than it is anything else. The things that we've seen, for example, graphic artists do with our software is just staggeringly cool. They, they will iterate on their own artwork and, and then the AI will come back with, hey, what about this? Mm. And we actually like watch the artist and they're like, man, that's a really cool idea. Then they'll change it. And in certain circumstances, they have a whole new series of pieces that are theirs that they manage to do because they have a new tool. So it's a bit like, you know, people who don't quite understand, and I don't want to try to you know, say that they're wrong or anything. I'm trying to get them to at least listen to the idea that, you know, this is a new color on your palette. If you're a painter, you're getting yeah. a new paintbrush. Um, 
And, and the more people who are open to that and that we've seen use AI in a very collaborative way, they're some of our biggest fans. Can I ask you a little bit about the deep fake scenario? Um, and first of all, you know, I'm on board. I'm a perpetual optimist. It's probably my my Achilles heel as an investor. I always look on the bright side. Uh, that's the entrepreneurial. Uh, it's a skill as an entrepreneur, but it can hurt you as an investor. Um, I've found it's better to be skeptical. But, you know, so there, there are two emerging arguments, humans with AI or humans versus AI, right, as the outcome of this. You mentioned deep fakes, and inevitably, this technology, like every other technology, will be weaponized by bad actors. We know that for sure, because everything is, right, from uh, from chemistry to whatever, you name it, right? <clears throat> um, and humans are bad at doing diligence. So in this deep fake scenario, I mean, we talked about FTX, right, individuals writing million-dollar checks and not doing any diligence, like, you know, it's a problem. Uh, therefore, when you are bombarded with a collection of deep fakes, what sort of knowing that humans aren't going to do the diligence to find out what's real and what's not? We know that about people. Do you foresee any kind of checks and balances? Like what's the fire department in that scenario, you know, that would so provide some clarity? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned, uh, we're hoping that the first fire department is this deep fake detection software on which we've put a bounty of $200,000. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we, we, we will provide that to everyone for free. Um, we will not charge for it. We will make it available on every site, everywhere. Uh, we'll send copies of it to the media um, so that they all have copies of that uh, software. Will that software uh, be static? Of course not. Um, you know, their adversarial models is how you come up with deep fakes in the first place. And we'll have to continue to improve that. And we will. Um, in terms of the humans versus AI, I think I'm a huge science fiction nerd. I love science fiction. I've read like all of what most people consider canon, the Foundation series and Dune and whatnot. Um, but I think science fiction did us a disservice here because, you know, what do we get? We get Terminators. Uh, we get um, all of these things that are fun to watch. Listen, I love the Terminator movie and, uh, you know, it's a fun, fun movie, but that isn't reality. Like, People are afraid, I think, more of actually sentient AI, right? Um, and we are a long, long way off from that. I mean, if you study neuroscience and their endeavors to figure out human consciousness, we don't even know how qualia emerges. Qualia is that sense that you get or I get. Like, have you ever seen Ratatouille, the, the kids movie? Yeah, yeah, I have. Okay, do you remember when the critic, who's a very dour guy, takes his first bite of the ratatouille and he's immediately transported back to his childhood and his mother hugs him and he has just these really warm mm. feelings, right? That's called qualia. When something uh, uh, acts as a catalyst to throw your mind to a different memory, to something um, you know, the smell of a rose. If you're a wine drinker, smelling that red wine for the first time, that's all qualia. 
the best neuroscientists trying to tackle, uh, tackle human consciousness, we do not have a definition, let alone an explanation of qualia and how it emerges. Uh, David Deutsch, the well-known quantum physicist who wrote one of my favorite books, The Beginning of Infinity, has a long chapter in there about, gang, don't be too frightened about this because we got to figure all these other things out before a sentient AI is even possible. So I think that uh, many people who don't like do a deep dive, uh, you know, they take their cultural references seriously. And, and so I think that one of the other things that O'Shaughnessy Ventures is trying to do is we're funding a ton of competitions uh, where writers, where filmmakers, where podcasters um, can create um, a vision of a better, brighter future. Because in terms of, you know, you mentioned you're an optimist. I, I like the saying, you know, pessimists sound smart, optimists make money. Uh, but we, but I also approach everything with the the watchwords of the Royal Society, nullius ad verba. Take no one's word for it. If you want to go further back and use more Latin, make it caveat emptor. So you gotta, you you have to link this with doing your homework. I don't think that that is too much to ask. And we're doing our homework. And when when the model, when and if it becomes available, you'll see it. It'll be on all the distribution sites. And then another problem is going to spring up and we will address it. Mm -hmm. Well, doing your homework might be the theme of this conversation. So maybe that's a good place to cap it. And I know you got to go. So look, GM, I really appreciate your time letting me go beyond uh, where the buzzer was supposed to be a few minutes ago, but it's been a pleasure chatting with you. I learned a ton and really appreciate your perspective. Thanks for having me on, Jay. I had a really good time. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.